like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. And in each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And as I've been going through chronologically, we can now announce that we have come to the end of the 1960s. So I guess this means this will be the last episode of season two of the Philip K. Dick Book Club. And season three will consist of the works Dick published in the 1970s. Uh, although that doesn't matter too much. I It's... Well, it does seem that uh, the shift from the 1950s to the 60s was a bit of a turning point because in the late 50s, Dick did turn his back on science fiction writing, try to make it as a mainstream writer. And then in in 1962, he comes out with uh, The Man in the High Castle, and then he follows that up with a bunch of, you know, the science fiction novels he's really well known for. So in that sense, I think that shift from the 50s to 60s is a real turning point. I, I, it's not as clear of a turning point when he goes into the 70s, but there are some themes that he, you know, he explores in the 70s and 80s that are kind of distinctive of that period, especially some of the psychological uh, or, or, or some of the more metaphysical and religious issues are, are taken to another level in the works of the 1970s. He's less overtly political, I think. Not, not entirely abandoning some of the more political arguments you saw in The Penultimate Truth or Dr. Blood Money. But, you know, he really goes more toward the religious uh, turn. And if that's what you're into, that's that's cool. It's not really my favorite thing. And in this way, I'm kind of sad that we're closing the book on the 1960s. Because um, I, I do find some of the writings from the 70s, and especially the 80s, a real kind of slog to get through. But anyways... Uh, you know, going through chronologically, this was inevitable that we'd have to say goodbye to to Dick's publications of the 19, 1960s. So um, here we're at. In, in today's episode, we'll be looking at at the Electric Ant. And the Electric Ant is, you know, the last short story Dick published in the nineteen sixties. Um, it was originally published in October of nineteen sixty nine in Fantasy and Science Fiction. Uh, you can find it now in The Eye of the Sibyl and other classic stories by Philip Dick, which is uh, the fifth volume of the collected stories of, of, of Philip Dick. Um, and if you have this book in front of you, you can actually see where the electric ant is. Um, and it's about two-thirds of the way through this final volume. Um, so you can kind of just glance at the last f- you know, 15 years of his life, what he published in, the, in terms of short stories. And um, it's not many. It's really sporadic after 1969. It, it's, he kind of did already stop writing a lot of short stories in 64. But, you know, really, it's, it's pretty sparing. And some of these weren't even published till after, after he, he died. For instance, um, he wrote in 1971, Cadbury the Beaver Who Lacked. And that's, that's a substantial chunk of, of the remaining bulk of this text. And that wasn't published till after he died. He doesn't actually publish another story until, I think, 1974. So he you know he's he's not really interested in writing short um short stories he does write a few important ones uh in the 70s and 80s i think the most important ones would be the one about time travel this kind of time cyclical time travel um i forget the name of it and then the pre-persons which got him into trouble with 
you know, that was coming out right at the time of the debate of over Roe versus Wade and abortion rights and feminism. And, and Dick got in a little bit of trouble for his anti-abortion uh, or, or seemingly pro-life stance with, in, in that story, the pre-persons. So there are some important ones to look at, but there's, there's really not that many. A lot of them are really kind of weird, and I'm not particularly fond of some of the stuff you publish in this 80s. But um, So again, I, I, I'm kind of dwelling on this, but I'm a bit sad to see the 60s go because I love those those novels of the 1960s so much, especially uh, Galactic Pot Healer. Well, anyways, um, as always, we're going to need to start with the plot summary and then go into a little bit of analysis. This is an important story, actually, and it's one that has been anthologized a lot. It's, it's one that gets commented on a lot by people who, who study Philip K. Dick. It's, it's a, in a way, a capstone look at his, uh, of his kind of robot or android um, series. You can kind of put alongside novels like We Can Build You, which I, I think was We Can Build You was published not far from this. I, I forgot when We Can Build You was written. I think it was a little bit earlier. But it's, it kind of pairs with that work really well. But you can go all the way back to the 1950 short stories to, to see the root of this idea that, you know, someone could be a robot and, and not know it, right? Someone could be programmed with certain memories and things. So anyways, let's just jump into it. Um, so Garrison Poole wakes up in a hospital bed after having lost his hand and suffered massive injuries in a, in a traffic accident. He talks with Lewis Dansman, who runs Poole's factory, um, which is which um, Poole is the owner of the factory, right? And it's the manager is this Dansman. Lewis Dansman, kind of ridiculous name. The factory is called Triplans, and when he's gone, it's being run by this guy Dansman. He's being managed by him. So later on, a doctor tells Poole that he needs to be transferred to a service facilities for robots because he's not a human. He's actually an electric ant, which is what in this world a robot or android is, is, is called. The doctor explains that this is not an uncommon occurrence for people who you know come to the doctors for some injury and then it finds out that they're a robot and you know, can't really be treated by doctors. They have to go to a repair shop. So now instead of his hand being kind of repaired, it's being fully replaced. Poole dis discusses the situation with the technicians. Instead of doctors, now he has technicians. Poole realized that he's never known that he was a robot because he was programmed not to pick up on the signs that he was not human. So it's not just that he's programmed to think he's human, right? Because someone could be programmed to think they're human and still see they got like a robot arm or they got cords instead <laughs> of veins. You know, it, you, they'd figure it out, right? This is, he's been actually programmed to be a blinkered on the signs that he might not be human. He was, in fact, a mechanical slave. Still, he lived a very good life. He had good memories of his life. And later on at home, Poole starts to explore his body to figure out how he was constructed and how he works. He really wants to kill himself, and he realizes that he can do this by accessing his chest panel and cutting off his reality tape that controls his memories and consciousness because that's where his essence really is, right? You know, you, you are kind of your brain. And that's an idea I think Dick is, is exploring here in this short story. He later has a better idea. His subjective, his subjective reality is controlled by that tape. So perhaps he can learn how to manipulate it to control his world and his experiences because he actually is experiencing the world as he's been programmed to experience it. So if you change how you're programmed to experience, you're actually changing the world for all intents and purposes, right? Your subjective reality is a product of, of your mind. 
So he thinks maybe I can control my, my reality. So he experiments with this and he starts by covering up some hole on a part of the tape that will be experienced in around six hours. And around that time, he's with Dance Man at a bar. Dance Man confesses that he knew Poole was a robot all along, ever since the owners of Triplan wanted a manager that they could control. And so he was actually hired basically to run this factory um, as, a, as a robot slave. He, at that point, he notices a part of the wall disappears. And this period of time corresponds with the change he did with the tape, you know, earlier, six hours earlier. He confirms that covering up the punch holes on the tape changed his reality, eliminating an object. And that's what he intended to do, and that's what he did. Leaving the bar, he notices many things are missing and assumes that other things are missing as well in the universe. You know, you can't really know what's not there, right? I guess like if you're used to seeing a wall and now the wall's gone, that's one thing, right? But if you're walking on a street and there used to be a store there and you have no frame of reference for knowing that that store should be there or it's been moved, it's, you know, you really, you really can't know, right? We probably had this experience where we're in a t- city and you're with, maybe with someone and you're like, I don't remember that store being there. And they say, well, that store has been there for six months. And you're like, well, I walk by here all the time. I don't remember it. And you might have a little bit of debate about when that was remodeled or when it was demolished or, or what happened here when that place went on to business and it was re- and replaced. You know, when, when we're living in this liquid world, it's how we kind of lose our frame of references on things. It's not like if our neighbor who we live next to 20 years dies. Like that's something that's pretty concrete. But often in our more liquid economy, you know, businesses come and go. Our, our ur- urban centers change. You know, I was just, I've been in Wisconsin for a while when I was, you know, recorded this, when I'm recording this. And I, you know, I'm kind of in my hometown. So I had the experience of that guy in Cosmic Puppets. Right. So you drive through and you're like, well, this isn't the town I grew up in. Right. You know, things change and you, it's a hard time sometimes when you remember what things were there before. Now, in Cosmic Puppets, the guy remembered everything perfectly. But, you know, I, I, I struggle with that. So the point here is like you can't know what's been changed in his world through his experiment because he doesn't have a frame of reference for everything. So anyways, I, I've been kind of babbling on that for a while. But um, he goes home and he finds that Sarah Benton is in his room. He tells her that he's an electric ant and begins immediately experimenting on his reality tape again, blocking out a 10-minute segment around midnight. He wonders if his quasi-organic brain can handle multiple images at once. Now, as scheduled around midnight, his reality begins to fade away. Sometime later, he returns to full sensory consciousness and is surrounded by technicians. They tell him that his manipulation of the reality tape jammed his system which is why he did not return to consciousness after the 10 minutes that he blocked out ended. The jamming is a safety mechanism to prevent the end of the machine because I guess you could blank it all out and then you're just, for all intents and purposes, a dead, a dead robot. Poole, however, is determined to use this reality tape to experience everything at once if possible. So he really wants to, you know, again, manipulate his subjective reality to have certain experiences or whatever. Um, and again, the, the idea here is essentially our, our reality is what comes from our brain, right? And if we can change our brain, we can change our reality. Poole tells Sarah that for his next experiment, he'll try to reverse time by cutting a segment of tape and reversing it. He's working up to a total experience, which may only take a moment, but he wants that experience to be of ultimate reality. Poole punches some extra holes into the tape. This cha- these changes give him the experience of ducks flying through the room. And to Sarah's shock, she also sees them. Now, here's where the story gets a bit 
bizarre because up to this point it's all about subjectivity and here we have a shared delusion that seems to come from Poole's manipulation of the tape. So she sees these ducks. He decides to go ahead with his plan to cut the tape and reverse time. The tape moves faster than he planned, preventing him from reattaching the tape. So he does and then have experiences this total sensory overload, overload, taking in countless images, and his final thought is of a burning sensation in his mouth. Now, sometime later, S Sarah Benton contacts Danceman to tell him that they are free from Poole, who has destroyed itself. Sarah starts to experience the fading of some of the reality around her, including Poole's body. And so the suggestion at the end of the story is that Poole has been able, by manipulating his own subjective reality, control the experiences of others. And, you know, he's a boss, of course, too. So that's kind of a subtext of this as well, he's kind of the employer control, and employers do, you know, control the space that they they dwell in. So it's a nice, very interesting story. It's it's a story that that really moves me. You know, in the 1950s, Dick Witter wrote this really as a guy figured out he's a robot, and then you know maybe experiments a little bit with it and tries to have a different ex, you know experience. But the really his effort here to go into how one subjective reality can dominate the experience of others is kind of fresh. He did do this a little bit in stories like The World She Wanted, but, you know, it wasn't his big interest at the time. And it's something you see a lot more in things like Faith of Faith of Our Fathers, certainly in The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, uh, The Maze of Death, and other stories like that. So this electric gang, actually, I would compare most closely with the very often neglected but very good story Dick wrote early in his career called The World She Wanted. In that story, you have a woman who realizes that she is in total control of her universe, and she begins to manipulate that reality, including manipulating the reality of the man she is dragging along on the night. In fact, the, the, the story begins as kind of a noir scene where he goes to this smoky bar and sees this beautiful woman, and they start to talk about philosophy, and then you know she ends up taking him on this little adventure. Now, The Electric Ant may be more mature as science fiction because we have an explanation about why this happened. we got this reality tape. We have the man figuring out he's a robot. And we have the reality tape, which feeds the experiences of the robot and then can be so therefore can be manipulated. But I like The World She Wanted. I, it's a much more beautiful story. It's much more touching. It's, it's got, it, it's kind of, it seems funner to me. The most, I think, politically powerful reading of these two stories is to start with everyday solipsism of of the one percent right and i think it's significant that Poole is a manager he's not really rich he's not really one of the one percent but he's still someone who can dominate a workplace and control that reality right and there's a lot of capitalists throughout history that have tried to do this in various ways right the, the famous welfare capitalists who thought they could create create the utopia right now a lot of that was very practical union-busting strategies, but some of it was really this belief that the, only the rich can create an, a, a perfect world, right? Even in Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth, you have this idea of, you know, the wealthy have to control money because they're the ones who can best manage it and, and, and actually push forward social progress. So we do have a small group of people who literally have the ability to manipulate reality to serve their interests. We have a very, the, you know, the small elite can do that. But I think even at the more mundane level, like managers, you know, low-level bureaucrats can have this power too. 
Right, if you ever go into a bureaucratic office and you feel that alienation that comes with being in a world that you can control is, you know, it, it's something we've all experienced, I, I think. Using that wonderful invention of money, they can do almost anything from raising palaces to starting wars to changing governments. In fact, Marx talks about, in one point, I forget where it is, but he talks about money really as this al kind of alchemy, right? Because it can, trend, it can turn into anything. Right. You know, all this time people are trying to turn, you know, lead into gold and all it took to really turn lead into gold is money. Right. You have to own a lead mine, I suppose, to, that helps you do that. But it's it's it eventually becomes, you know, the futures market can turn lead into gold all the time. It happens every day. There's actually uh, Neil Stevenson's books, The Baroque Cycle, get into this theme a little bit in interesting ways. It's not conspiracy theory stuff, really. They they actually have this power and there's not much democratic forces can do to stop them. Right. And in this story, they're way they have to wait out this pool's kind of delusions to, to get their freedom. Um, now, we've seen in stories like Now Wait for Last Year where people can, you know, choose rich people that is can choose to live in a entirely constructed 1930s Washington baby land. Right. Um, we, we already talked about that novel. They can manipulate reality and most of the time make us suffer these changes. Pool's not. Poole is not surprisingly a member of that elite class running, you know, he runs a company. Uh, I, he is used to having that power. And when he realizes he's an electric ant, he wants to expand his manipulation of reality. And it's very similar to the world she wanted. But that story doesn't have the class dimensions that I think this story uh, has. Now, the second way to read the electric ant and I think the world she wanted as an example of, of radical freedom, the change in the programming and how Poole can change how others look at him and the world, the, even the smell of his environment or every other little detail. In this sense, he's really an omnipotent figure, but only from his subjective reality, right? And suddenly Poole becomes radically free. And this is what the text says on this. Quote, my universe is lying within my fingers, he realized. If I can just figure out how the damn thing works. With this, he did not merely gain control of himself, he gained control over everything. Now, like the heroine in the world she wanted, Dick is defining freedom as the capacity to remake the world from our individual will, not necessarily the will of outside forces. It remains ambiguous if these changes, the changes he makes to his subjective reality, have any effect on others. And the point of view of Poole, it's impossible to determine, right? Maybe, and it, it, it seems this is a possible way of reading it, that even the, the, the thankful statement at the end by by the woman that we're finally free of pool is also just a reflection of pool's subjectivity, right? We never really can fully escape that solipsism. Um, however, such a conclusion would require that everyone was in some sort of sheer delusion, such as those described in Eye in the Sky and The Maze of Death, which is the next novel we'll, we'll actually be looking at. So we'll come back to this issue of subjective delusions and all that in, in, that, um, in that novel. So I guess that's what I got to say about Electric Ant. Uh, welcome back to some of these themes, certainly in A Maze of Death. I, re I really do like this story. I, I prefer A World She Wanted um, for a variety of reasons. Just kind of the, the aesthetics of it are more pleasing to me. But uh, this has gives us a lot to think about, and especially on these themes of subjectivity. It's a very contained story. It, it doesn't sprawl thematically like some of Dick's stories do. So he really has a point to make, and he gets to it. So it's a good one. Uh, I do recommend uh, reading it. So um, that that does it for the 1960s. Uh, thank you 
for supporting this podcast and thank you for listening along and reading along with me. If you have any of your own comments about Electric Ant, please uh, leave them below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And um, you know, I'd love to love to hear what you have to say or what you what you think about these stories. Um, but we'll I'll be back shortly um, and we'll be jumping right into the 1970s with a maze of death. So thanks again for for listening. And contentment forever If you